What a name Jesus has, huh? Praise the Lord. Well, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, find Romans chapter 9 if you have your Bible with you. Most of it will be on the screen if you don't. But we continue to journey through the book of Romans. So grab that Bible, find Romans 10. That's where we're going to be, Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, just a minute, we'll be there. Now, you hear people talk about something called wanderlust. This intense desire to travel, see the world, you know, experience cultures. I think I've always had it. I think I've always had it, but, you know, it became more intense and those desires were kind of stoked when I was a teen and I went on every missions trip that our student ministry offered. And, man, how, how awesome is it to, to see different cultures, to try new foods, new coffees, new candy. <laughs> I always enjoyed that. What a beautiful world God has made and so diverse. For me, traveling, seeing these places has been a critical part of my life formation. And I, I know some of you are like that. You love to travel. It kind of means a lot to you. Raise your hand if you're in that category of people. You love to see, okay, even more than first service. Interesting, okay. Now, traveling is not something everyone enjoys though, right? Some people are like, hey, I don't see much point in it. I like where I live. I like the people. My job is good. I like my house. They prefer the simplicity of what's right around them. The NWI, right? How many of you are in that category? You're like, I don't really need to go anywhere. I'm, I'm good. Okay, some of you admit it's not, you don't feel ashamed, okay? It's okay. We all are different in this way. But regardless of whether you like to travel or not, if that's your thing or, or not your thing, this morning what we're going to see is when it comes to salvation, we need not travel anywhere or even make an expedition towards God, in fact, we can't travel the kind of places that are required to obtain salvation. Spiritual wanderlust actually keeps people from the simplicity of the gospel, which we'll see this morning is right before us. God has brought that salvation near. Jesus has done all the traveling required for salvation on our behalf. So our passport to heaven is simply through faith. It reminds me of one of the worst songs I ever learned as a kid. All right, let's see if you've heard this one before, okay? Oh, you can't get to heaven on roller skates. Yeah, we, we sang that as a kid. Why? Well, you can't get to heaven on roller skates because you'll roll right past the pearly gates. That's what we sang. And there were other verses, though, like... Um, oh, you can't get to heaven in a rocking chair because the rocking chair won't get you there. Brilliant lyrics. A little redundant, but uh, I, the limousine verse, I remember that. Because you can't, you can't get to heaven in a limousine because the Lord don't sell no gasoline. So we're not even going to touch that grammatically, but okay. I always remember the rocket ship one. I remember liking this one. You can't get to heaven in a rocket ship because a rocket ship won't make that trip. But here's the one that always made me wonder about like everything was you can't get to heaven with Superman because the Lord, he is a Batman fan. <laughs> really? He went with the Dark Knight? <laughs> Obviously, our church had a lenient filter for children's church, okay? And if you've ever led that song, I'm sure you'll come up and tell me that you're upset. But I guess that the point that the leaders were trying to make 
was you can't get to heaven any other way. There is no transportation that will get you to heaven but through Jesus Christ. Now, I'm being very, very gracious because Jesus isn't mentioned in the song. But I think that's the idea. Hey, you can only get to heaven through Jesus Christ. Enough about half-baked kid songs. Let's get into the text. Let's see the traveling that Jesus actually did that we'll see here in Romans chapter 10. So would you follow along as I read Romans 10, our text, verses 5 through 9, and notice what God's word says. Romans 10, 5 through 9. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You probably are familiar with verse 9. It's one of the signposts on the Romans road as we talk about the scriptures in the book of Romans that describe for us the way to heaven, the, the plan of salvation. Now, I have to be honest with you, this text is multi-layered. It's complete with Old Testament quotations, scholarly debate. It's actually got quite a bit of depth to it, but we're going to try to keep it pretty simple, not get into the weeds here, and just look at one main point. And we're going to look at four phrases. That's going to be our, our main points. Simple enough for a child, but essential for your passport to heaven. Things that must be said in our heart if we want to get to heaven. So let's look at them. First phrase this morning, I can't. I can't. Now, I don't want you to forget what we studied last Sunday if you were here. In verse 4, if you have your Bible open, you can glance at verse 4. And this kind of sums it up. Verse 4 of Romans 10 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so what we saw last week was Israel failed to keep the law. They were given the commandments of God. They were given the law. It wasn't for lack of trying. It wasn't for lack of effort. It wasn't for lack of of zeal we saw. They were misusing the law. The law was never meant to get them to heaven. It's as effective as roller skates or apparently Superman. That's not what the law was given to them for. It, in fact, those that try and try in their own strength to find a way to please God, to be right with God, end up seeing Jesus as a stumbling block. That's what our scripture said last week. So Paul continues the same idea in verse 5. I want to read verse 5 for you again. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So the, the person who's looking to, to, to the law, any law, could be the Mosaic law like Israel, could be the Ten Commandments, could be the Golden Rule, whatever your law is, whatever your code is, if you're looking to that law as a way to be right with God, it can't be done. And more effort, you know, we explained it last week, like turn in that jar. More effort won't do it. Good intentions aren't enough. I explained it this way uh, last week. God gave Israel the law like, like a path. So it was a path that as they followed the path, 
it led them to Christ. And so they tried to keep the law. But the problem with Israel was they were so myopically focused on their steps, them keeping the law, their righteousness, that when they got to Christ, they bumped into Christ. He was a stumbling block. And they ignored him. They didn't see him as Messiah. And to this day, they continue on the path, by and large, not every Israelite, but by and large, on the path of righteousness, missing Jesus. So this, this path was meant to take them to Jesus. He is the righteousness. It's not the path. He is the righteousness. And so for anyone who chooses the path, the law, instead of Jesus, anyone who says, I'm, I'm doing my thing, I think I'm going to be okay one day before God, that person chooses the path of the law. And if you choose the path of the law, then the Bible says that it demands perfection. you got to keep the law 100%. I mean, last week, James 2.10, whoever keeps the law but fails in one point is guilty of the whole law. That's what James 2.10 says. So if you say, I, I, I think I'm okay, I don't know that I need Jesus, I'm good. Well, then the Bible says you've got to keep the law 100%. And here's where our two simple words come into play. I can't. I can't keep the law perfectly. I would imagine you would agree with me. You can't keep the law perfectly. Righteousness requires perfect obedience. But here's the good news. God never expected us to accomplish that perfect righteousness. Otherwise, he wouldn't have prescribed the sacrificial system and the ways in which when Israel failed, they could be made right with God. All pointing to a sacrifice to come, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So all of that was given to Israel, pointing to Jesus. It's a path to Jesus. And when Paul writes about the Old Testament law, as he does in the book of Romans a bunch, he holds it high. He says the law is good, but he also explains that the whole purpose of the law is not to make you righteous, but to take you to Jesus. And what Paul does not want to happen is for us to make the same mistake that Israel did and miss it and stumble. So in verse 5, Paul goes back to some Old Testament scriptures, actually Leviticus. And, and this is written, we're going to see it on the screen here in a second. This is written when God gives the law to Israel, and as the law is being given, Leviticus 18.5 says this, God speaking, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So if you're glancing at your Bible, you can see this is where Paul's drawing from. And also other scriptures, like Ezekiel 20 verse 11, it says, I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules. By which, if a person does them, he shall live. So there was always this idea as God gave the law to Israel. If you follow my law, you stay on that path, you're going to experience life as I meant it to be. Abundant life. Joyful life. Not always easy, but peaceful life. This is how you enjoy life is following God's commandments. But you, you disregard those. You step off the path, and we have all done it, the Bible says. And, 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 there, and this, I'll testify to this. Every time that I step off the path, think I have a better way, what do I find? My life is emptier. It's darker. I'm at un, I'm unrest. I have unrest inside of me. Here, here's an important little caveat. Maybe you can write this down if you're taking notes. The law was meant to bring life, but not eternal life. I mean, God tells them, if you keep this law out of faith for, in me and in the Messiah to come, you'll experience life. But it was never meant to give eternal life. It brought life 
not eternal life. Here, here's the crazy thing. Even what God designed to bring life, if we twist it, it brings death. That's what Paul said earlier in Romans. This thing, this law that God gave Israel, it was meant to bring life. And what do we do? We make it about our righteousness and it becomes death to us. If you have your Bible open, just flip back a page or two to chapter 7. And we looked at this a little while ago. Chapter 7, verse 7 through 12. And Paul's writing and I'll just read this for you, chapter 7, verse 7 through 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. 7, 8 says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Look at verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So here, Paul picks this back up in chapter 10. and says, yeah, the law was meant to bring life, to bring abundant life, life in Yahweh. But what do we do? Our sin causes it to be twisted into something it was not intended to be. And then that law brings condemnation because if we're trying to bank on our morality, we're going to feel condemned because we can't do it. I can't keep the law perfectly. So I can't live a spotless, pure life. And not only that, but I can't perform the cosmic requirements of salvation. See, even if you were able to to live a perfect life, never make one mistake, never step off of the path of God's commandments, which you can't, and I can't, but even if you could, it's still, there's more required to deal with the sin problem. We have original sin that comes through Adam that we all inherit. We have death needing to be conquered. Can we do that? Even if you lived a perfect life, which we can't do, there still is more to be done. There are these cosmic requirements for salvation, We can't ascend to heaven, the text says, right? We can't descend into the abyss. Let's start with, we don't even know what the abyss is, right? I mean, it's it's based on a Greek word which means darkness and bottomless and, and emptiness and deep. So traditionally, they thought it was the place of the dead, kind of like Hades. You know, the Greeks wrote a lot about this. But there's a lot of mystery. We don't even know what the abyss is. We, the point remains this, though. We can't go there and secure salvation. We as humans are not able to descend to Hades. We're not able to ascend to heaven and secure salvation. These are cosmic things, impossible for us mere mortals, way beyond our pay grade. If we're trying to accomplish salvation, we can't. Here again, Paul's quoting an Old Testament passage, and I want you to read it. Carefully, so if your Bible's open, look at Romans 10. Up on the screen, we're going to see Deuteronomy 30. And you can see where Paul is drawing from. He's going back into the book of Deuteronomy. And and here, God issued these words in Deuteronomy 30. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart that you can do it. 
In both of these passages, these Old Testament passages, Paul seems to see a deeper meaning than we would normally maybe see and the people of Israel probably understood. In fact, what we realize here is that embedded in Deuteronomy 30 are arrows that point to Jesus. Because Paul's talking about these passages and he talks about Jesus and you're like, well, I don't see that in Deuteronomy 30. Yeah, he does because the Spirit is inspiring him to see Jesus in the Old Testament because the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. But in the original context, as you look at what Moses was instructing the people to do, he's, he's saying, you know, if you had to travel to heaven to be right with God, or if you had to go to the other side of the world, particularly before airplanes were invented, okay, if you had to go to the other side of the world to, ob- to obtain salvation, you had to travel to do that, you're out of luck. You can't go to heaven. You can't go to the other side of the world, or in our Romans passage, you can't go down into the abyss. But you don't have to, he says, because the word is near you. God has brought the word near to you. And so to the children of Israel, that's his law brought to them, who Yahweh is, who God is, that they would have faith in him. If, if Israel could have really gotten this, if they could have really gotten this. They would have understood it's not about me keeping the law. God's already done the work. He's bringing his word right to us, near to us, in our heart, in our mouth. We simply have faith in Yahweh, faith in God. And then, then they could keep the law in such a way, that's what Moses is saying, you can keep the law out of faith for God and you can rejoice in the path that God has for us. Think about David in the Psalms, what David says about the law. He says, oh, how I love your law, God. I love your commandments. So is David crazy? No, no, he, he's, he's walking that path with an eye towards the future of what God's going to do. He understands, I can't keep the law. Thank, thank God for sacrifices. And then, of course, thank God for the one day sacrifice, his descendant who will come. See, David got it, but a lot of Israelites, they missed this, and they twisted the law. It was meant to show them Jesus, the Messiah who would come. And that brings us to our text in verse 8 and 9 and the next simple phrase. Though I can't, Jesus can. I can't, Jesus can. Who can ascend into heaven because he came from heaven? Who can descend to the place of the dead and then live to tell about it? Jesus. Only Jesus. Jesus did what no one else can do because Jesus is The unique God-man, 100% God, 100% man. And Jesus was with his Father in heaven for all eternity past, which I don't even comprehend, but he's with his Father in heaven. And he willingly descended here to this earth. No one has to go bring him down, as the text says. He already came. He descended to earth. It's called the incarnation. He's born as a baby. Living among us, God with us, Emmanuel, right? This is Jesus. And this was truly unprecedented. Never before had God come near like this. That's why history, this is the pinnacle of human history. I mean, even our calendars reflect this. Jesus came and the paradigm shifted. Everything changed. It's interesting that Moses says to the people of Israel, God has brought his word near at Mount Sinai. How much more as Jesus enters our atmosphere and comes here as a human did the word come near? Did God come 
here. He came near with the law with the children of Israel, but he came very near with Jesus Christ. And here is salvation. And then salvation was secured by Jesus' death on the cross. Now, if you're really observant, a lot of people notice this. This beautiful paragraph of Scripture, which is all about salvation, doesn't include the cross. doesn't include the death of Christ. You'd be like, I see the resurrection. Where's, where's the cross? Why, why is it this passage about salvation include the cross? It doesn't really seem to need to because Jesus' resurrection, if you look at the verse 9, Jesus' resurrection proves that Jesus' death was not in vain, that it accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish, and that it was different from any other death that's ever happened. So he died like every other human, but then he didn't stay in the abyss of death. He didn't wade through the river Styx. He, he died, and then three days later, God raised him from the dead, so he's alive. So that's very different from every other death. He conquered death, and he, he proved that he conquered death by, by appearing to all of these people. Historically, we have records of him appearing to people. And then after that, he ascended into heaven where he sits right now at the Father's right hand, right next to the Father, and he's Lord. He's Lord over all. That makes him Lord because he accomplished the cosmic requirements of salvation. To quote a somewhat better song that I sang as a young person, you came from heaven to earth to show the way, from the earth to the cross, my debt to pay, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky, Lord, I lift your name on high, right? Jesus did all this. He did this. He traveled from heaven to earth, incarnation. He lived here. He died. He rose again, and he ascended to the Father. This is all what Jesus did. And here's something I want you to consider. Because Jesus came near and he made a way for us to be right with God, then that means that there is no longer any obstacle between you and God. There's nothing between you and God. Salvation is near. It has been brought near. No more outer court of the Gentiles, which we would all probably be in if you're not Jewish in ethnicity. No more temple. No more priests to be our mediators. No more hoops to jump through. Which is why it's so unfortunate and indeed blasphemous when religion tries to re erect these barriers between us and God. God's already brought salvation near, so there's no need for saints to mediate between us and God anymore. There are no sacraments that must be kept in order for you to obtain salvation. Because Jesus brought it. He brought it to us. And when Jesus came, the paradigm shifted. Jesus did what we could never do. We can't. Jesus can Let's consider another set of simple words here. I can't, Jesus can, and God did. God did. Read verse 9 with me again. Verse 9. This is a great verse. Let's read it again. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So not only do we have the work of Jesus being celebrated in this text, we have God the Father and what he did by raising his son from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That God raised Jesus from the dead. This happened. This is not a fairy tale. 
There are numerous, numerous historical documents that attest to this truth. Many people were interviewed. They, they gave testimony that they saw Jesus walking and talking and eating with people. Now, I don't know if you believe that this book is inspired, the very breathed words of God, as, as I do. But, but even if you just take this as a historical document, even if you just say, okay, well, it's at least it's a historical document, there is overwhelming evidence that Jesus raised from the dead. Think with me here. What if someone in a thousand years is reading in their history book about 9-11, right? And then they, they kind of think to themselves, man, I wonder if that actually happened, which sounds preposterous to us, but let's just say that, you know, it's a thousand years from now, they go, well, did that really happen? And so that they get online on their computer or whatever they have in a thousand years, and they find, you know, several newspaper articles, one from the New York Times, one from the Chicago Tribune, one from the Washington Post, and they all say the basic facts of, of what happened on 9-11. Now, even if you believe that there's political bias in those newspapers, and I imagine some of you do, <laughs> it doesn't matter. When it comes to these big events like this, they all basically will say the same thing about 9-11. For a paper to come out and say, no, that never happened, they would be discredited very quickly. When it comes to Jesus' resurrection, we have a number of independent witnesses saying all the same things. Jesus was dead, and now he's alive. There is not one source that gives evidence of a hoax, of a cover-up, that Jesus was still dead and they found him in the grave. There's not one. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. And I challenge you to study it. Do your research, and you just might come to the same conclusion that the Chicago Tribune uh, reporter, journalist Lee Strobel did. Jesus is alive right now. That's why we're singing to him. You might say, why do we sing these songs to a historical event, a person that died a long time ago? Because he's alive. He's not dead. He traveled from heaven to earth. God moved heaven and earth. And then he traveled back up to heaven where he sits right now as Lord. We don't have to go anywhere. We don't have to do anything. We simply confess and believe, verse 9 says. That brings us to our final words, I believe. I can't. Jesus can. God did. I believe. One more time, let's read verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. We believe that Jesus is Lord. These truths are fundamental to salvation. You want to know how to get to heaven? Here it is, right here. Now, something I wanted to spend a little bit of time on is what it means to believe. So I bet right now if we pulled the room, right, and said, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again? I believe that probably at least 90% of us would come back with affirmative. I believe that. I'm just guessing. I don't know the statistics. But I would think maybe 90%, maybe more would say, yeah, I believe that. I believe Jesus died. I believe he rose again. But we're talking about more than intellectual assent, more than just saying, I believe these Truths. It's simply more than agreeing with a few points of doctrine. What does the Bible say? The demons believe and they tremble. It's not just believing in your head. What does the text say? To believe in your heart. To believe in your heart. The deepest parts of you, the, the truest 
parts of you, the word means your internal spiritual core, where your emotions come from, when where your passions come from, the, the deepest part of you, you believe that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And here's the thing about that level of belief, that internal core belief, is it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to flesh itself out in your life. It's going to show itself in the way that you, in the way that you live. I believe that because of many passages of Scripture, but I see it right here in the text. Because not only do we believe in our heart, what else? We confess with our mouth. And the word confess is a compound word, right? It's hama legeo. So legeo means to say or speak, and hama is same. So to say or speak the same thing, confess. So we say the same thing about Jesus that God the Father says about Jesus. We say the same thing about Jesus that Jesus himself said about himself. We agree with God, this is who Jesus is, that he's more than a man, that he's more than a great teacher, that he and the Father are one. He said that, the Father and I are one, that he is Lord, that he is Lord. I want you to think about that confession for those Roman believers who first read this letter, right? Those Roman believers, they read it. And in just a short time, Nero will begin to systematically eradicate Christians. To say that Jesus is Lord, to confess that means he's above every Caesar, above every ruler. He's over everything. He's over my life. Jesus is Lord. If he's Lord, then that means that he's in charge of every part of your life. The ramifications from this simple confession, Jesus is Lord, they're far-reaching, they're they're lifelong. Here's what I found. Just when you get to a point where you think, oh, I feel like I'm kind of getting mature as a Christian, maybe I can chill and coast for a little while. There the Holy Spirit puts his finger on something else. Mark, you're not near as spiritual as you think you were. How about that pride? How about that selfishness? How about this or that? This is a lifelong thing, and we live obedient lives God, keeping God's commandments, as an expression of our love for God, as an outflow of our faith in Jesus Christ. He's accomplished righteousness, so we trust in what he's done. And this is the true righteousness that Paul's talking about here. It comes from a faith. It doesn't establish our righteousness. It's obedience that comes from our faith in him. It's very different from self-righteousness. You know, self-righteousness is me trying to justify myself, make myself right before God because of me. No, this is, I trust in what Jesus did. He did it all. And out of that, I want to arrange my life to obey Jesus because he's my Lord. I'm very burdened about this, that perhaps there'd be somebody here that hears these messages in Romans, and, and, and you quite enjoy them. And you say, yeah, it's Jesus. It's not me. I don't have to do anything for salvation. Jesus did it. Awesome, let me go about my week. But never understand something very critical, and that's that if Jesus died for us and he's Lord and we're following him, then that means that we submit our lives to him. Now, it's a lifelong process, and we follow him very imperfectly. It's one thing for us to say, I trust in Jesus that he died for me and rose again. It's another thing to allow him to have lordship over our whole life. And just surrender and say, Jesus, do what you want with me. I don't know what that's going to mean, but I'm following you. This will mess with our plans for life. It will. It's going to mess with us. It's going to challenge our priorities, what we do with our money. It's going to mess with our sex lives to realize I don't have control 
over something so fundamental as my body, but God is calling me to obey him. Submitting to Jesus is uncomfortable, right? It's, it's invasive. God will meddle with our lives because here's what happens. The Spirit doesn't want us to just claim to follow Jesus. He wants us to actually follow Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, which, which way do you want me to go? What do you want from me? Again, we do this poorly. We mess up. But this is what it means to confess that Jesus is Lord. Say, yes, you're my Lord. Could you be so close to salvation but missing it? Is that possible? Say, yeah, I believe these truths, but, but there's never been a time where you've surrendered to Jesus. He's there for you to get you out of hell. That's the way you look at it. Instead of realizing I'm here for him, I'm here to give my life to him. Don't miss it. Sunday after Sunday, the gospel through the book of Romans, it is, it is near. The gospel is near. The word is near. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's on the screens. It's in your Bible. It's right here. You don't have to go anywhere else to find what you need. It's here. There are many today who are searching for meaning in life, ascending, descending, if you look at our text, looking everywhere except to the simplicity of the gospel, which is simple enough for a child to understand, but hard to put our trust in, hard to put our faith in. There's some who think the only way to salvation will be through like a spiritual quest or a voyage into philosophy, intellectual spelunking, or just, you know, try to explore different ways to find meaning, to find purpose, to find a God or gods or whatever that's out there. And I'd, I'd say, by all means, study and do your due diligence. But in the end, the answer is right in front of us. With all of those expeditions, those excursions, they're only con going to confirm, verse 9, that there's no other way except Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He resurrected. That changes everything. The Indigo Girls poetically explain the search for meaning that many embark on in one of their songs, probably one of their more famous songs. They say, I went to the doctor, I went to the mountains, I looked to the children, I drank from the fountains. There's more than one answer to these questions pointing me in a crooked line. And the less I seek my source for some definitive, the closer I am to find. Now that's a great song. Love that song but very sad words when you think about it because they say, the less I seek my source for some definitive, the closer I am to find. And no one is closer to find until they find Jesus. But a lot of people are trying, right? They're ascending. They're descending. They're trying to find a way. They might even convince themselves that they're closer to find, but they're not closer to find. But alas, this is the reason for evangelism. Right? This is the reason for, for God's gospel to go forth and for us to share it with those people that we care about. Believer, do you want to apply this sermon right now? Because maybe you're sitting here going, all these gospel sermons are great. I believe that stuff. Here, here's how you can apply it. You should want to see every person that you know have the plain truth right in front of them, near to them, in their mouth, in their heart, so they can believe. That's all that's required but they need to hear the truth, the gospel, in order to believe. And I would guess you know, you know at least one person. You, need, you know someone who's ascending. Maybe they're ascending into like philosophical ideas or other religions or whatever. Maybe they're descending into their own indulgences and finding a way through whatever means they can find. 
Regardless, they have yet to embrace the simple truths of the gospel, these phrases that we're sharing this morning. And God can use you, brother and sister, to share these truths with them, to bring it right near to them. And you need to take Paul's words in verse 8 as an exhortation, and so do I. The gospel is the word of faith that we proclaim, means preach, that word, that we proclaim. We share it. We share it with other people. I want you to consider the unreached people groups around the world, people that have never heard the name of Jesus or don't know the gospel. And this morning, we have an unreached people group wall out here. You probably saw it. It's black. I don't know how you could miss it, but if you didn't get a chance to walk around it, please do after the service. And there's some instructions there, but you can grab a people group, a prayer request. You can walk around the wall. You can find alphabetically the country and then the region in that country. And just consider the thousands, the millions of people who don't know the name of Jesus. What are we going to do about that? We should have a burden about that. That's why we have missionaries. That's why we share the gospel. How will they believe if they have never heard? But that's getting a little ahead of us, isn't it? Because that's the text in a couple weeks. I don't want to steal Pastor Steve's thunder, so we'll leave him to get into that. But truly, this is the catalyst for missions. Here's the true motivation for sharing Jesus with people. If you think back to Israel, Israel was given the word by God at Sinai, and it was near. It was right there. The Romans, they read this letter, and Paul shared the word with them, the gospel with them. It was near. It was right there. They just had to believe Who is God calling you to bring the word to? Jesus already did the traveling required for salvation. Let's not get confused here. It's him. He does the work of salvation. We saw in Romans 9, it's God that saves people, but we go to share it with them. He came near and he did the work of salvation. Now we go to people and we share it with them. People need to know that Jesus is the only way. And we can tell them. So who is God calling you to travel across the street to or across maybe the globe to and share Christ with them? And I want you to really think about that and pray about that, believer, because God's already done the traveling. We just have to travel and tell. All we got to do is say it and say, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Here this morning, we have four simple words of faith that get us to heaven. I can't. Jesus can, God did, I believe. 